skinwalkers, UFOs, and a search for buried treasure. Somehow, these oddities connect. Featuring Farah of The Conversation Cabin, Amanda of One Nothing Podcast, Vicky of Mrs. Spooky Obsessed, and Courtney of Haunts Podcast. Join us for this four-part live event. The Paranormal Project presents Tuesday Top Terror, Mysteries of the Uinta Basin. Listen live on The Conversation Cabin, Tuesday, March 21st at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Available on demand with Haunts, Thursday, March 23rd. Join us for this collaboration to die for. I have a bit of a confession to make. There isn't much that scares me. I mean, I don't think I would make it very far in this field if I were one to scare easily. But ever since I was a kid, there has been one thing that has thoroughly given me the creeps. Now, I don't like to share this often, mainly because the phobia is more or less stereotyped as being juvenile and irrational. But even still, it seems that the anxiety around this topic is more common than you might think, especially considering the psychology behind it. You see, I have nyctophobia, more commonly known as the fear of darkness. Yes, I'm scared of the dark, and while that does feel a bit comical to be saying out loud, I should mention that I'm likely not the only one of us who has this sort of aversion. In fact, approximately 11% of the U.S. adult population shares this disdain for darkness, due to a wide variety of different reasons. For instance, nyctophobia is what psychologists call a prepared fear, which basically means that, on an evolutionary scale, we are predisposed to fear the same things that our ancient ancestors did with darkness being at the very top of that list. Not to mention, the fear of darkness is often associated with the fear of the unknown, because, after all, when there is darkness, there is also uncertainty. And then, in my case, nyctophobia is commonly linked to a fear of what could be hiding in the shadows, or rather what might be watching us when it's too dark to see. I'm Courtney Hayes, and you're listening to Haunts. Stay tuned. The coastline of Central California is a mountain lover's paradise. Between the cool and refreshing waters of the Pacific Ocean and the expansive terrain of the Santa Lucia Range, the region is a popular destination for outdoor enthusiasts and nature lovers alike, and for good reason, too. For starters, the Santa Lucia Wilderness Area is home to an array of exotic wildlife, many of which are indigenous to the region. In fact, if you are interested in visiting Santa Lucia yourself, you may come across everything from boa constrictors and the highly venomous fertilants to the more tame agouti and even the St. Lucia parrot during your travels. Not to mention, the wilderness area is also popular amongst the locals of the nearby Monterey and San Luis Obispo counties thanks to its collection of developed campgrounds and a multitude of scenic waterfalls. All things considered, it's no secret why the countless hiking trails of this 18,000-acre wilderness area 
are so highly trafficked during daylight hours. But what many don't know is that there is also something a bit darker that travels these trails as soon as the sun begins to fade. Reports of strange encounters in the foothills of Santa Lucia have been cited as early as the 1700s, back when Spanish explorers still frequently traveled across the rugged chaparral-covered terrain. It was during their travels through the wilderness that these explorers began to notice dark figures off in the distance at sundown. They were tall and foreboding, never failing to send a shiver up the spines of these mere mortals. This is likely due to the fact that these beings had no discernible features. In fact, they were little more than a humanoid silhouette that appeared to have a wide-brim hat resting atop a tall frame. Not to mention, these spirits never appeared up close, instead opting to remain a distant but ever-present penumbra. And worse even was the ominous aura radiating from these entities. What their intentions were, we still don't know. But as these explorers traveled through the wilderness towards the coastline, one thing became clear. These dark shadows were watching their every move. These beings, inhabiting the Santa Lucia wilderness area, were soon given a rather menacing name. The moniker Los Vigilantes Oscuros, or the Dark Watchers, was coined by the very Spanish settlers who had the unfortunate pleasure of discovering these entities all those years ago. And over the last 300 years, these Dark Watchers have been fascinating and terrifying hikers visiting the Santa Lucia wilderness. Now, as always, I will strive to remain as transparent as possible throughout the entirety of this episode. And in service of this, I feel the need to make one thing clear before we move forward. The earliest reports of the Dark Watchers are fairly vague. In fact, I wasn't able to find any concrete stories about these entities that date earlier than the late 1800s. But be that as it may, the limited background that this early history provides is still worth considering when analyzing this haunt as a whole, so let's continue with a bit of Native American folklore. The vast majority of my sources credit the Chumash tribe of Central California for the first oral record of the Dark Watchers, although they were of course called by a different name. The closest Chumash comparison to the Dark Watchers is an entity called Nunasis, a creature of a place known as the Lower World, that harbor ill will and bad fortune towards those of us living here on this higher plane. So much so that they have the propensity to pierce the veil and reap havoc on our realm as night descends. Now, in case you are curious, these creatures are more often described as the tenombrious form of misshapen animals, although they have also been known to manifest in more humanoid shapes, which no doubt has led many to believe that these beings in the Dark Watchers are one and the same. However, there are some discrepancies between the two that may be worth noting here. Specifically, this Chumash legend is more akin to the more menacing entities of Native American lore. In fact, they are considered to be closely related to the Algonquin legend of the Wendigo, or Navajo stories of the Skinwalker both of which are arguably much worse than a shadow figure looming in the distance. 
Although this is not to say that you shouldn't have a healthy fear of the Dark Watchers. In fact, they say you shouldn't even approach if you happen to encounter one out in the wilderness. Because, according to the earlier record at least, those who have tried vanished without a trace. Despite the obscured nature of early Dark Watcher encounters, more concrete stories of these nebulous specters eventually wormed their way into American literature. And while these works were mostly fictional, the stories that had inspired them were more or less based in personal experience. Enter American author Robinson Jeffers, who is credited with the first literary reference to the Dark Watchers. Now Jeffers is known for highlighting the lifestyle and culture of Central California, so it's no wonder why he focused his lens on the enigmatic legend in his 1937 poem titled Such Counsels You Gave to Me, where he evocatively warns, quote, they come from behind ridges and watch, end quote. Then in the year that followed, author John Steinbeck published a short story entitled Flight, which paid its own respects to these fabled specters. For some context, the narrative follows the story of 19-year-old Pepe Torres, who lives with his mother in rural California, just about 15 miles outside of Monterey. The story begins with Pepe's mother asking him to ride into town to pick up a few items on her behalf. It should have been a simple favor. Yet when he returned the following morning, Pepe admits to his mother that he has killed a man in a drunken blur and that he would be hiding from authorities in the nearby wilderness. Now, Mrs. Torres, while apprehensive, lets her son go, but not before passing along the following morning. Quote, When thou comest to the high mountains, if thou seest any of the dark watching men, go not near them, nor try to speak with them. End quote. She, of course, was speaking about the legend of Los Vigilantes Oscuros. And lo and behold, as the story progresses, Pepe does have a chance encounter with these creatures. But thanks to his mother's advice, he was able to evade them. Now, like I said, the tale of Pepe Torres is, of course, fictional. Although the story of a son and mother living in rural California alongside the ever-present threat of these creatures is a very real experience from Steinbeck's childhood. Like most California locals, Steinbeck grew up hearing stories about the Dark Watchers, namely from his mother, Olive, who passed a healthy dose of respect and fear of the spirits onto her son. And it was likely her experiences that inspired this haunting narrative. It was during her early career as a school teacher when Olive first encountered the Dark Watchers. You see, on her daily commute, riding horseback through the remote forests of Big Sur, young Olive began to spot dark figures out of the corner of her eye. Now, while her gut reaction was likely to flee, Olive instead approached these encounters with a bit more poise, opting to leave gifts for the specters as a sign of respect. And to her surprise, the Dark Watchers acted in kind, often leaving bundles of flowers for Olive to find on her daily trek through the forest. When he got older and had a child of his own, John Steinbeck passed his mother's stories along to his son Thomas. And in the end, it was Thomas who eventually published his grandmother's encounters in a book which he titled, In Search of the Dark Watchers. I will have Thomas's work 
along with the other literature that I've mentioned throughout the episode in this week's show notes. And I do encourage you to go read more about Olive's encounters for yourself, because they present a new take on this otherwise spine-chilling legend. Maybe the Dark Watchers aren't as nefarious as they seem. At this point in my research, I began to wonder if there was any legitimacy to the legend of the Dark Watchers. I mean, aside from the accounts of Olive Hamilton, any in-depth reference that I could find was purely based in fiction, which made the story as a whole seem a bit lackluster. So there lies the question. If not a malevolent being from a spectral plane, then what are the Dark Watchers? Well, as it turns out, the answer may come down to basic physics. There is a phenomenon known as Brocken Spectre, which more or less accounts for light anomalies that occur during twilight when the sun is at a perfect angle to the horizon. As a general concept, Brocken Spectre is simply the magnified shadow of the observer, the Spanish explorers in this case, which has been cast onto the surface of a cloud or mist instead of a solid object. For some additional background, this spectacle is also known as Mountain Spectre, because it's most likely to occur at higher altitudes, where dense clouds can form below the observer themselves. And given the mountainous terrain where our story is set, it wouldn't be unfair to assume that the original Spanish explorers were observing this phenomenon on their travels. Simply put, they may have just been spooked by their own shadows. Now for the record, I do believe that Brock Inspector is the most likely culprit behind this haunt, but there is one minor detail that gives me pause. Even to this day, the Dark Watchers are described as the tall silhouette of a man wearing a wide-brimmed hat, a description that is almost synonymous to that of the well-known shadow figure known simply as the Hat Man. As the name would suggest, this entity is most identifiable by the brimmed hat that sits atop its head. Beyond that, the hat man is known to be a tall and slender shadow. Sounds familiar, right? Now, if you go purely off of this description, you could make the argument that the hat man too is a product of Brock Inspector. But I hate to say, that's likely not the case. You see, the hat man is encountered in a variety of different situations the majority of which seem to be at lower altitudes, after the sun has completely set. For some context here, the Hatman is thought to be a common hallucination that most often manifests during instances of sleep paralysis. However, some cite encounters with this being during their lucid waking hours, which has led many to believe that the phenomenon is more likely paranormal activity than a nightmare-induced hallucination. Don't worry, we'll discuss the Hat Man at length in a future episode. But for now, I think it's worth considering as a potential cause behind the Dark Watchers. Because, after all, the Hat Man is known to watch from the shadows. A quick Google search of the term Dark Watcher will lead you to countless articles describing these beings as fictional creatures, 
And based on my own research, I can almost certainly subscribe to that mentality. This, of course, is due to the lack of tangible evidence and documented encounters with the Dark Watchers. But what if I were to tell you that there is a similar legend that carries a bit more substance? Before we end today's episode, I would like to take you on a quick trip across the pond to the rolling hills of the Scottish countryside. Because here, amongst these lush green pastures, lurks something a bit darker. The spirit said to haunt the foothills of Ben McDewey is known simply as the Grey Man, which can only be described as a tall and thin shadow figure that stalks hikers and travelers visiting the area. But unlike its cousin, who supposedly inhabits the wilderness of Santa Lucia, the Grey Man can only be seen on a clear day or a moonlit night, rather than a misty twilight. But on most occasions, the entity is merely just heard. Take the story of J. Norman Colley, for instance, who is credited with the first encounter with the Grey Man. Back in the year 1891, Colley was hiking to the summit of Ben McDewey, and on his way back down to lower elevations, he began to notice a strange sound on the trail behind him. As far as he was able to tell, the noise was almost mimicking his footsteps. Only this was no mere echo of his feet hitting the gravel, but rather the independent sound of someone else's stride crunching along the trail. Collie turned back toward the summit, likely expecting to see another hiker further up the incline. But when he did, he found that he was utterly alone, save for the crunching sound of disembodied footsteps still echoing off in the distance. It wasn't until years later that Colley finally made an official report of the encounter to the local press, which eventually sparked a debate between skeptics who argued that the story was merely the product of Colley's own paranoia and believers who would often cite their own encounters with the gray man of Ben McDewey. And even though it's been nearly a century since that report was made, skeptics and believers have yet to agree on an explanation. So in parting, allow me to turn this debate over to you. Are these legends simply the manifestation of our own prepared fears, or maybe just a trick of the light? Or is it more likely that we are never truly alone in the dark? This episode of Haunts was written and produced by me, Courtney Hayes. If you've been enjoying the show so far, I would greatly appreciate it if you could give it a follow or leave a review. A lot of work goes into each episode, and supporting the show really helps us reach more listeners each week. Also, if you are interested in learning more about today's topic, I highly suggest checking out the show notes section on the Haunts website at hauntscast.com. This is where I link all of my sources and share any visual content that may be referenced during the show. Finally, if you would like to receive sneak peeks or updates about the show, make sure to sign up for our email list on the Haunts website or follow us on social media at HauntsCast. Thank you for listening, and until next time, happy haunting.